Hi folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on Fat-Burning Man, where we talk about real food and real results. Today's episode of the show is with Denise Minger, and she's the author of Death by Food Pyramid, and she's an author who takes pride in beating the tar out of conventional wisdom. So it's a really fun show. Stay tuned for that. Just a quick request before we get to it. If you haven't already, I would be much obliged if you took a second to leave a review on iTunes for Fat-Burning Man. All you have to do is obviously go into iTunes and then type in a few words and leave a star rating for the show. It really helps us get more eyes on the program so more people can hear about it, take control of their own health, and start kicking butt in the world. So if you haven't already, please leave a review for Fat-Burning Man. I really appreciate it. All right, so on to the show with Denise. We talk about a surprising secret behind how the food pyramid was created, why some women gain weight on paleo, how to spot a fraud in nutrition and fitness. This is a pretty fun one. And why writing a book will ruin your health. All right, let's go hang out with Denise. All right, folks, Denise Minger is a health writer and lecturer with a reputation for calling out BS in dietary dogma making today's leading voices of conventional wisdom cry. This is going to be fun. How are you, Denise? Doing great. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, I uh, I was just talking to you about how much I love your book and your approach. I remember reading your, your uh, blog posts when, uh, or around the time that it originally came out, which basically uh, you were one of the first, at least to do it in a popular way that I saw, um, to take modern nutrition and punch it in the face and stomp on it until it was... <laughs> completely deflated and didn't make any sense anymore. And so tip of the hat for that. And I think this book has been a long time coming. Um, so I really appreciate you bringing all this stuff out there. And we can get into the specifics, but I'd love to have you start with just that moment that I think um, quite a few of us in the in the paleo space at least have experienced when you were uh, 17 years old, you walked into the dentist's office and uh, he or she didn't have good news, as I understand. So where were you at then? And then we can kind of catch up to, to where you are now. Sure. So basically my health journey kind of started when I was seven years old and I went vegetarian. It was second grade, I think. I almost choked on a piece of steak and I just became really <laughs> phobic of anything with a meat texture. So I just dropped the meat. You know, yeah. I stopped eating everything that looked like meat on my plate. And as the years went on, I kind of got more involved in like the animal rights issues and just the health aspects of being a vegetarian. Yeah. And my yeah. parents thought it was a phase, you know, and it, it lasted 10 years. So I guess it kind of was a phase. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't think it was. I was very invested in the whole vegan, vegetarian movement. And then um, over the years, by the time I was 11, I was diagnosed also with with a wheat allergy after being very, very sick for a year. So I had to stop eating wheat. And then shortly after that, I found out I was also sensitive to dairy and to soy. And so at that point, you could, you know, I could almost eat nothing at all, right. especially for someone that age. So I had to start reading nutrition labels. And um, it was around that time where I started investigating different diets. And I should also mention, I was just very sickly as a child. I was, you know, I got bronchitis and ear infections and mm -hmm. sinus infections. I was on antibiotics almost constantly. It was pretty rough. So I was always interested in what it would take to actually feel good because I just felt like everybody else around me, even as a child, they had so much energy and I was here just not feeling like doing anything because my body was broken. 
again. So I fell into the raw vegan movement when I was 16 years old. I came across some very bold claims on the internet by someone named Douglas Graham, who's a chiropractor, but he preaches this fruit-based diet. And at the time, I had no background in anthropology or human biology, physiology, anything like that. All I knew was what I was hearing on the internet. So I heard these claims about, oh, well, the chimpanzees eat nothing but fruits and vegetables, and look how healthy and strong they are, Mm -hmm. and they're closest genetic relatives. And so, you know, light bulb moment, that makes sense, you know, given what I knew at the time. Mm -hmm. So I just went full feet into the um, raw vegan movement. I went completely raw vegan for a year and ate basically nothing but like raw fruits and vegetables, small amount of nuts and seeds for that year. And that started when I was 16. So by the time I was 17, which is where you just mentioned that Mm -hmm. that jumping in point, um, the first few months of being raw vegan were wonderful, but after that, you know, I noticed my hair falling out. I could not keep muscle mass on my body for any period of time. It just, nothing would stick. I just was skin and bones. Um, you know, hair falling out, teeth were very sensitive. My skin was getting very dry. Just a host of problems, cold mm-hmm. all the time. And I was in major denial for the first part of that. I just, I felt so good at the beginning. I felt like, well, now I'm just detoxing because that's yeah. what everyone was on the internet was telling me. And I, again, I was just listening to the internet people. Yeah. So I was like, well, I'll just wait out the detox. And then 17 years old, you know, before this, I had a perfect, almost perfect dental health bill. Every time I went in, just great teeth. I always took great care of them. Never changed my dental habits, even when I went raw vegan. So sat down in the chair expecting the same thing I heard every time I went to the dentist. And instead, I got this very uh, concerned, hmm, uh, as he was poking my teeth. And I just knew something horrible was happening. And at the end of the appointment, he told me I had, I think it was 14 or 16 cavities. I don't think they even counted. It was just decay on every tooth. It was Mm -hmm. incredibly... disheartening for me and especially because I took such pride in my teeth and I felt like you know it was great that I could go to the dentist every time and brag about not getting cavities so at that point I realized okay I don't want to have dentures by the time I'm 30 and that's when I really realized I couldn't trust the people on the internet that I'd been listening to and I really had to do my own research because who do I believe now Mm -hmm. so that's what launched me yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's not because you were like downing a 12-pack of soda every day. No, no. That's <laughs> yeah. Part. You know, I never even grew up drinking soda. I think I probably had maybe 10 soda things in my entire life. Right. And so the dentist, of course, when he saw that, he was like, oh, you must be drinking so much soda. This is really weird for someone who's not a smoker. You know, what, what are you doing to your teeth? And it was, at the time, I was thinking, well, maybe it was the fruit sugar. But I actually learned later on it wasn't just that. It was um, a lack of fat-soluble vitamins, which are really important for bone health and dental health. But had no idea at the time. Yeah, and it's crazy. So a lot of people, um, if they're not, you know, familiar with the ancestral approach or, or West A Price, they don't really understand what the the teeth the way that the teeth are kind of the canary in the coal mine right that that teeth it's not just going to the dentist and having cavities it's about something much deeper than that so can you can you riff on that a little bit why is why are the teeth and dental health why is that important so dental health often reflects kind of what's going on the entire body and if you're anyone out there who's familiar with Weston A. Price and the traditional cultures he observed what he found was that they could eat a wide spectrum of different diets, but they all had these common denominators in place, and they all had just beautiful teeth that would grow in straight. You know, today we think nothing about getting braces on our kids or right. getting cavities filled or anything like that, getting our wisdom teeth pulled. But for so much of human history, we didn't have, you know, that dentistry in place. And still teeth would grow in straight for the most part, you know, not everywhere. But it's really intriguing to think back at what human 
dental formation used to be versus what it is today. And so a big part of that, again, is the fat-soluble vitamins. And what Price found was that um, in every culture he found that had these beautiful teeth and great bone structure, they were eating some source of very you know nutritionally dense fat-soluble vitamins, especially vitamin A, D, and K2. And unfortunately, these are the foods that have kind of been exiled from our modern menus because they're often so high in saturated fat and cholesterol. Yeah. So there's ones that are bad now, so we can't eat them anymore, but actually they're some of the best things we could be eating. You know, things like organ meats and shellfish and egg yolks and hard cheeses. So, my um, language. Yeah, yum. <laughs> right? Yeah, so th those foods, of course, were embraced by these traditional cultures, and they would often go to great lengths to acquire them if they couldn't have them in their immediate environment. They would, you know, trek miles and miles, and they knew that these foods were what would produce generation after generation of healthy children. Yeah. And for in that case, it's like the bones were often the first thing to suffer upon switching to a more processed, westernized diet. And so, you know, we might look at our teeth as just some kind of uh, aesthetic thing and want to get them bleached and look pearly white just to look good. But in reality, they often reflect what's going on in the entire body and whether we're actually nourished. Right. Yeah, totally. Now, when you wrote this book, obviously you're, um, you're really interested in research. You're great at it. Was there anything that surprised you while you were doing the research for the book itself? I'm sure there was. What, what are a few things that... Yeah. So the first thing that really surprised me was in the, um, the just the history of the food pyramid itself. You know, mm -hmm. I kind of knew the basic assembly of it. But what I found in the process of researching was that the roots of the food pyramid actually went back to the 1970s with this woman named Louise Light, who I'd never heard of in my life before. I actually thought I was pretty well versed in this kind of history. But I, I found out there was this mysterious figure <laughs> who very few people knew about. And I went to great lengths to trying to find people to interview who knew her and her family and all that because she actually passed away shortly before I started the book. But she seems very obscure still today, which is a tragedy yeah. because um, originally she was hired by the USDA to replace the Basic Four, which had been in place since, I guess, World War II, which is four food groups. It was basically, you know, eat a lot of everything and just, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> and, you know, by the time chronic disease and obesity started overtaking America, um, the USDA was under great pressure by Congress to reduce the cost of healthcare. And so they're looking at reforming the food guide and trying to treat that through the dietary angle. So they hired this woman, Louise Light, to basically create a new food guide for America um, that was based on science and that would help people become healthier and ward off these chronic diseases. So she was hired, she was brought on, she was plucked out of, I think she was teaching at NYU at the time, and she was brought down into uh, Maryland to work at a research center there. So she spent a year just doing research, re digging through all the literature that was available at the time, convening groups of, groups of experts, and by the time she was done with this thing, she had a food guide in place that was just general recommendations that she felt were scientifically supported that would help people become healthier. Mm -hmm. And it was based, based on a ton of fresh fruits and vegetables, um, healthy fats. She was not fat phobic at all. And like the later USDA wisdom we would see, she actually thought cold pressed fats were wonderful and should be used liberally. Um, she thought that grains would be, uh, a problem to eat in large quantities. And so she recommended cutting them down to two to three servings maximum per day per adult and, you know, less for less active people, more for people or the three would be for people who are very active or like, you know, athletic men, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And she thought that more than that would cause a mass epidemic of obesity and diabetes. And so her food pyramid kind of looked 
the inverse of what we would eventually see. And so she was very proud of this. She worked very hard on it and she thought that it was um, economically feasible. She didn't see any problems with it. So she submitted it to the USDA, um, the Secretary of Agriculture at the time, just to get it approved. And instead of getting approved, it got completely mangled by the USDA and whatever went on behind closed doors, she was never totally aware of. But when it got sent back to her, the grains were suddenly at the the base of the food guide and they had exploded to form six to 11 servings instead of two to maximum and there was no recommendation like she had recommended only whole grains you know never processed or refined that recommendation was gone it was just like a grain free-for-all starch central and uh, she the, the USDA even pruned down fruit and vegetable consumption to like two to three servings a day maximum initially you know combined for fruits and vegetables and she thought that was a horrible idea as well it was only because the National Cancer Institute later urged the USDA to change that recommendation because they thought that they, that recommendation would give people cancer and just promote very poor health. Vegetables will give people cancer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Great job, guys. (laughs) So it was a mess when she, you know, she saw this, this creation that she had made and it just got completely mangled by the USDA. And all they told her was that it would, they needed to keep uh, costs, the lid on the cost of the food stamp program and that they needed to exchange fruits and vegetables for grains in order to do so. But her calculations didn't quite match that. And um, basically, she felt like she was not being told the truth about what had gone on and why they had changed it. But she never found the answer, and she had, she had no power at that point to really protest it. So they ended up approving that, and then over the years, that became the basis for the 1992 Food Guide Pyramid that the USDA eventually released. So, yeah. Wow. So the, the biggest reason that they gave her anyway was that food stamps wouldn't accommodate the original triangle that she came up with with plenty of veggies and that veggies would give you cancer is that along those lines okay (laughs) just to be clear about this (laughs) so that's really interesting i I actually hadn't uh heard that or realized that before that it was it was more about the food stamp program uh and and the having food that was cheap as opposed to food that was good for you so you had to find foods that fit into this uh, template where it would be cheap enough for you to give them to people with with food stamps given the budgetary constraints at that time exactly and that's what we're continuing to follow (laughs) to some degree that is madness my my lord okay so um (laughs) if anyone wants to be totally horrified about all the ins and outs of that please read Denise's book it's <laughs> it's just packed with things like that and I love that those tidbits of information are so useful to understand how we got into this uh, horrible mess that we're in because one of the questions that I get a lot from from folks especially when um, I'm doing speaking or I'm on doing an interview on someone else's show or something they're like so what's different about your book or your your dietary approach than from every other dietary approach out there and I'm just like well there are kind of two two approaches here and the first one are the companies that are really not in the diet industry but the food service industry uh, you know like weight watchers for example or people who are trying to sell you a bunch of shakes and bars and supplements and cleanse kits and all of this other stuff that's really more the food industry and that's where they make their money um, and usually it's not real food it's fake food and it aligns with whatever system arbitrary system that they came up with to somehow force you into restriction which results in temporary but not permanent weight loss then there's the second group that's been doing this, this, <laughs> what we're doing, like for a really, really long time. And there are, of course, are like tiny little differences between them. 
um, you know, between Paleo and Weston A. Price or Primal or what I say should be done or, or like Rob Wolf and Lauren Cordain and what you're saying and, and everyone else. But we agree on almost everything. It's just more of like the way that we're communicating it. So could you walk us through a couple of the ways that we've known this for a really long time, like banting and like you said before, with the food pyramid, this isn't a revolutionary new diet. This is something we've been doing for a while. Oh, for sure. I mean, you can even just look at human evolutionary history and what we we're eating up, not even up to 10,000 years ago. You know, the paleo approach tends to look at foods or, you know, the standard definition of paleo, which I think has evolved massively beyond its original yeah, definition. Totally. Um, but if you look at what humans ate up to about 10,000 years ago, you can see it was a fairly consistent real foods, things you could forage and hunt and pick off trees and stab and, you know, just scavenge. And it was the things that um, actually resemble what they still looked like in nature, opposed to the mass concoctions that we have today that are just frankenfoods. And yeah. I don't even think you need to go back 10,000 years necessarily, just look a few hundred years ago too. take someone back um, out of the 1600s, say, and put them in a supermarket today and see what they recognize on our shelves. Everything we have in the supermarket, maybe 90% of what's inside the middle part of it in those aisles, mm -hmm. it's just, it's the same mixture of like wheat, corn, and soy in different forms. And yeah. it's pretty yeah. horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, fat, that's something that people continue to be afraid of. Um, you're not, as I understand. So <laughs> why, why are you not afraid of fat? How much fat are you eating a day? Um, actually, my diet's not super high in fat. I, my, my main sources of fat are usually um, fish and coconut products, um, some nuts and seeds. I'm actually not a huge meat eater. Oh, I do really love organ meats, though. That's kind of my favorite thing. But I guess um, like my own approach right now is kind of a fusion of what worked for me as a raw foodist, what I've learned from Weston A. Price, and what's worked for me, like the ancestral health spheres that I've learned from that. I just kind of mixed it all together. So my own diet, I don't really count macronutrients at all. Um, it's probably on the carbier end than most people in the ancestral health movement. But I think the idea of being afraid of fat just because of you know, our history um, and being told so often by the USDA and other health organizations that especially saturated fat is going to kill you, yeah. the science behind that is so incredibly weak that um, there's maybe only a small portion of people out there who are going to respond poorly to a high saturated fat diet, and that's a genetic link there with ApoE4 phenotypes. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the most part, people really don't need to be afraid of eating, you know, especially nourishing high nutrient uh, animal foods that are high in fat. Um, because again, that's those are the foods we've been scared away from because of these this reductionist look at how food works is based as you know saturated fat versus cholesterol. When we view foods as just containing those nutrients and then being bad, then we shun all these great things from our diets. Yeah. So you talked about how your own approach is your own approach. What do you? looking at day to day like what if we're following Denise around over the shoulder what is she eating for for breakfast lunch and and dinner if um, it I, even is structured that way it's it's kind of <laughs> I should mention like when I was working on my book and still kind of the aftermath of that my entire life schedule was <laughs> in disarray because I was I that, up yeah. writing and it was kind of ironic because I got very sick with the flu after I finished my book and I was it was just so ironic to have written a health book and then become very <laughs> Dude, that happens to like everyone though. That ha they don't talk about it, but it happens to almost everyone. It made me feel better to hear that happen to a few other people too. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really it's like, well, now do I have any right to write this book and tell people what to eat? <laughs> I like part myself, but um, for the most part, uh, 
I guess my dinners um, kind of fluctuate between, there's this great, great sushi place just down the street from me, and I've been getting boatloads of salmon sashimi from them. I'm <laughs> just like nice. foraging on that recently. I'm yeah. um, just trying to like refuel and like help my brain get back into working order. Um, but I do a lot of liver, like sauteed with onions and garlic, and then on a bed of um, whatever greens are at the farmer's market. I shop at the farmer's market here in Portland quite often. And so I try to eat locally. Um, like right now, there's a lot of great tubers. Like there's something called yakon, which is this thing, I think it's from Peru. And it's this low, it's fairly low starch, but it's tuberous and it's like kind of sweet and crispy and delicious. And I've just been like going to town on that as well. Nice. Um, there's a few farms nearby where I get eggs from that just have beautiful golden yolks. And I love that usually for breakfast. And I just got some quail eggs the other day from an Asian store. I'm going to try seeing what those are like. They're pretty fun. They're kind of, are they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. There's like, oh. Yeah. So um, beyond that, I eat. Uh, I've kind of gone lower on fruit lately just to to um, experiment with that. I usually eat quite a bit of fruit, but uh, right now I'm kind of limiting it to berries and some citrus. Um, for the most part, I don't eat a lot of muscle meat like steak or chicken uh, just because it doesn't appeal to me that much taste-wise, but I don't really have anything against those kinds of meats. Um, yeah. I've been doing some bone broths and soup and just just kind of getting back into the swing of things now that I have time to cook and shop and live. <laughs> <laughs> Writing a book is killer to anyone out there. Like, <laughs> until you write a book, you won't understand. <laughs> I feel your pain. <laughs> so um, one of the things you talk about in your book is is how we put so much trust into um, the wrong people, uh, people who are coming out of diploma mills, for example. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because it, it's not just nutrition or personal training. It really applies to a lot of things. Um, and, and I think we can take nutrition as a subject that we're all um, focused on at some point of our lives would, might be because of weight loss or health or something like that, but we can really extend these lessons to pretty much everything that we do. Um, so in what way are we right now misplacing our trust, uh, generally speaking, as Americans, um, yeah. in the foods that we're eating? Right. So what I see a big um, problem with is this idea of we can trust anyone who has the right credentials. We seem to be very enamored with um, PhDs and MDs and anyone who has those letters after their name. And of course, as someone who doesn't have those letters after their name, I might be speaking with some bias because I'm like, you know, you want, I want you to listen to me too. But <laughs> at the same time, you know, it's just because somebody has a medical degree or a degree in nutrition even or um, anything after their name that seems to give them authority, it does not make a person immune to bias. It doesn't make somebody accurate and correct in everything they think and believe. And in fact, we could pin a few different PhDs in one room, all who seem to have um, a great deal of qualifications and experience, and find that they have diametrically opposing views on nutrition. And so it's at that point where you realize, okay, well, you still have to use your brain at some point because you have to either evaluate who you're going to trust or you have to evaluate what they're saying. Because if you trust anybody who seems to have those credentials, then you're still going to end up in a massive pile of confusion. Mm -hmm. So one thing about medical degrees that most people are not aware of is that doctors do not actually get much, if at all nutrition training. And even though they have, you know, a great understanding of how the body works and different interactions with medication and, you know, just different functions, um, they don't get that, that, uh, that background in how food impacts the body in the way that somebody who even has a few hours to surf the internet and PubMed might get. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, to get a Harvard medical degree, you don't even have to take any nutrition classes right now, which is kind of horrifying. If you yeah. think about how much food influences how the body works and how healthy we are, the idea that doctors out there don't have that training is very disheartening. So um, somebody who's 
saying, well, you know, my doctor said that low carbohydrate diets were going to, you know, hurt my kidneys or something. You can't follow that advice from your doctor because chances are, if you have any time to research on your own, you have more time than they do <laughs> because yeah. they're so busy treating patients. You know, I don't want to even criticize doctors for this necessarily because I know it's an incredibly difficult profession and it's incredibly stressful and you have very little time to do anything outside of your practice, which is just, you know, seeing people, da 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 So um, just keep that in mind for people who are trying to get information or advice from medical professionals. Um, they might not be the best people to trust. And at the same time, you mentioned, you know, diploma mills. There's something very scary going on right now, especially in the alternative health community. Um, I've noticed this a lot with raw foodists as well. After I was, you know, exiled from that community. <laughs> the, the people over there, I was like, well, this guy, you know, he's a doctor. Well, how come he's saying these things about, you know, <laughs> I, I just doesn't comprehend, does not compute. So you go back and you look at where these people actually got their education from, where those, those letters after the name are uh, certified by. And so often it's by something called a diploma mill, which basically you send in, you know, some sum of money, you give them your address and your name, you sign a couple of things, and they will send you a diploma for having given them money. And that's a very scary way to buy credibility because mm -hmm. obviously if you're willing to go that low to get, you know, some letters after your name, it speaks some of your character in a certain way, I think, uh, for a health professional to do that. Yeah. And I think... Uh, it's almost better not to have any letters after your name to have one than to have ones that have been bought in such yeah, a way. High five. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, so I recommend that if somebody out there, you know, if you read a book by somebody, there's this guy named Agenis von der Planets who actually passed away very recently, um, but he promoted the primal diet, not to be confused with primal blueprint, mm -hmm. but it was basically raw meats, many things that have been left out in jars called high meats, um, like little jars of meat that's rotting and then eat that and it's a very interesting diet and I know some people who swear by it but at the same time the the guy who was promoting this diet Agenis um, when I looked into his background um, and I actually saw that a lot of people had looked into his background because he had you know a whole bunch of certifications and degrees um, they're all bought by diploma mills really wow. these people you know are putting their trust and trusting this guy um, who just does not have that background but because they think he does you know, that's where who they're listening to. Yeah. So unfortunately, there's a lot of alternative health figures out there who do that kind of thing. So I yeah. recommend people look into backgrounds and just check that out instead of just falling into, into the um, that trap of trusting credentials when you see them. Totally. Yeah, just letters after your name. It's uh, over the course of my life, I've had many experiences where I could add some more. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I mean, you can go and get uh, officially... Uh, licensed as a bartender in a weekend. You can also get officially licensed and get letters after your name as a personal trainer in a weekend. And, oh, wow. and pretty much it's like so many other things. And it's just like, it begs the question, what are you really getting out of that? And what are other, it, it, it's really, um, I think, a problem uh, if you're putting that after your name and you don't really have any sort of experience in it other than a weekend and a bunch of money that you shelled out. Um, and actually, it's not even usually that much money. Like maybe it wouldn't be so bad if it were $100,000 per letter after your name or something like that. But it's it's like kind of cheap for a lot of these things. You <laughs> can, <even> worse. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so uh, you touched upon this earlier, but it's all kind of leading down the path of saying that you shouldn't put your, you shouldn't outsource your trust when it comes to your own body and your own health. And I think that's something that, that you and, and I had to learn the hard way from being sick first. And that kind of just like made you wake up to this fact that 
no one else knows this better than you. You have to, it's on you, you know, to figure out what your favorite foods are and fill in the gaps with everything else that, you know, will get you the nutrition that you need, which yeah. your doctor probably won't know unless they totally rock. Um, <laughs> most nutritionists who are uh, trained today or not trained and just have the, the letters after the name don't really know what that is either. It really comes back to you. So let's talk about how that's important, not just because of your own personal experience, but also because of our own individual biochemistry and the way that our, our bodies work, because it's, it's not one-to-one. -one. Um, right. So can you talk about individual variation a little bit? Yeah. So one of the most interesting things when I was researching this book was coming across all these different genetic markers for how we process and metabolize different foods. And um, one of the most interesting for me was something called amylase. And uh, so we all carry two copy, or we co covers, or we sorry, we carry several copies of a gene called Amy One, which codes the amylase gene in saliva. And human beings can carry anywhere between two and fifteen copies of this gene. And for uh, like primates. Um, I believe it's only two copies across the board. I think some only have one copy. It's different for each species, but humans are one of the only species, if not the only species, that can have this huge range of variation. And what amylase does is it breaks down starch into sugar. And so the amylase in your saliva, what it does is it, it launches the digestion process of starch. So somebody who is producing a lot of amylase in their saliva, if they eat a potato, you know, sweet potato, something very starchy, a cracker, um, if they have a lot of amylase, it starts breaking it down very rapidly. It enters the stomach, and um, basically what they see is a very mild rise in blood sugar, You know, nothing to be too alarmed about. But if people have um, very low levels of amylase in their saliva and they eat the same food, what we see, and this has been verified in human experiments that are very well controlled, is that after they eat um, that same amount of starch, same food, everything, what happens is their blood sugar skyrockets and it stays elevated for much longer than somebody who's a high amylase producer. And so what this filled in for me was the, the question of why do some people seem to do well on high starch diets and other people just crash and burn so quickly? Like if you're familiar with Dr. Do John McDougall, he just wrote a book, or not just, it was a few years ago, called The Starch Solution, which is basically recommending eating a starch-centered diet. And even though I'm not a vegan anymore, I tend to spend a lot of time on vegan message boards just like trying to see where success and failure occurs within that realm because it fascinates me when I see somebody thriving on a diet regardless of what the diet is and I want to know you know why is that working for this person and so I think this is a big missing piece of why different people especially even doing ancestral paleo type diets might do well adding more starch back to their diet and you know report good results from that where someone else might try the same thing and be like geez now I'm starving all the time I just gained a whole bunch of weight what's going on yeah so that, that was fascinating to me and I think um, Unfortunately, the, the one place that you could get your amylase gene um, tested, which was 23andMe.com, um, they're shut down by the FDA right now, so mm -hmm. you can't do that anymore. But I think there's some other tests people can get if they want to know what their number of amylase copies are. Um, and the more copies you have, the more amylase you generally produce in your saliva. So you know, that's just one example of um, how different starch tolerance will work between different people. There's other things, like I mentioned, the APOE4. Um, so we all carry two copies of the APOE gene, and uh, you can be a carrier of APOE2, APOE3, APOE4. And ApoE4 is very interesting because um, basically people who have this gene have trouble getting enough cholesterol into their brains. And so what that ha what that does in return is um, their bodies tend to accumulate very high levels of LDL cholesterol in their bloodstream in an attempt to get it up to the brain. And uh, what that does in turn is if you are eating a diet that's um, 
promoting blood ox or oxidation of uh, LDL cholesterol, it's probably going to increase your risk of heart disease. And so for people like that, they might need to tweak their diet a little bit more. They might not be able to eat as much saturated fat as someone who's a different APOE type carrier. Um, but yeah, stuff like that. And then when you look at just all these different puzzle pieces and how that genetic picture fits together for each individual, it just seems so ridiculous to prescribe, you know, exact set of macronutrient ratios and exact food plan for every single person out there without, you know, giving respect to the person's individual needs. Yeah. So if you're a person who is that individual, um, who's trying to follow a dogmatic template, what do you do next? Get rid of the dogma. First. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's actually a huge thing. Um, you know, as a vegan, a raw vegan in particular, I experienced enormous amounts of dogma within that community. It was like you were told if you failed on the diet that it was your fault because the diet yeah. is perfect. Mm -hmm. The diet cannot fail. You can fail. <laughs> it's your right. fault. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, I still see that within the paleo community sometimes within different low carb spheres. Not quite as much. I don't think I've ever seen it quite, quite reach the levels of the raw vegan movement when I was within it. But at the same time, we need to release this idea of um, looking for that one perfect diet and uh, having that blame the victim mentality within the diet communities. Because if somebody is struggling, um, I, I know when I was a raw vegan and I was having trouble, when I posted about it online, people told me I must be eating Big Macs every weekend or you know, cheating on the diet if I was having trouble because it was impossible to mess up on the diet. Yeah. And um, so we really need to release that, that, uh, that type of thinking and instead learn from each person who's struggling or each person who's having success and look at each thing without getting defensive about, well, their failure is threatening my success or something like that. Mm -hmm. We need to just look at this thing of, okay, we're individuals and we can all learn from the collective experience of the whole. So have you seen a lot of examples of people doing diametrically opposed things and both having success? Yeah. What so does that look like? It's very interesting to me. Um, I, you know, I mentioned Dr. McDougall. Uh, I get people from my blog who read my blog who will email me. Sometimes they're extra vegans who have gone high fat paleo and they're like, oh, finally my body's happy. Other times it's people who are struggling on paleo and they went to a very low meat, low fat diet and they're like, wow, now I feel really good. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have to respect the fact also that people's uh, needs and uh, I guess state of their body health will fluctuate over time and what's working at any given moment might not be working in five years. Yeah. But at the same time, it's um, what I notice when people have success in very, you know, the diametrically opposing realms, there's still some common things between those two, you know, extremes. And so even if we look at someone who's eating a whole foods plant-based diet and somebody who's eating a high fat paleo diet, we can still see that, okay, both people are excluding refined sugar, refined grains, mm -hmm. vegetable oils, um, processed foods. These are both real food, whole food diets, even if they vary in what types of foods those are. And so I think we can learn a lot by looking at, um, like what foods are ex excluded universally by diets that promote health. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really useful as well. And that's where it gets back to like, this is what we've been doing for a really long time is yeah. not everything that we're doing right now. Right. <laughs> Pretty much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, most things that Americans are doing right now, if you just cut that right. stuff out, then you're going to be fine. It doesn't matter if you're paleo or vegan or whatever. It's like, you're going to be doing a lot better. <laughs> um, but, but that said, I think one thing that, um, I haven't brought up, I've, I've had a lot of like private conversations about this, but I'd love to, um, talk to you about it, Denise, because I think you might have interesting perspective. So um, it seems to me that in the experience with a lot of the people that that we've coached and, and people who listen to the show and, and readers of the blog and such, a lot of guys, as long as they're doing paleo, they're having 
results pretty much. They're, they're experiencing something that's awesome. That's usually fat loss. Uh, their hormones start to regulate a bit better. As long as you're not burning the candle at both ends and, you know, starving yourself at the same time, things tend to go pretty well. Um, but with women, what it looks like is it works really, really well for some people. And then there's like a larger percentage of people, um, or, or not necessarily the majority, but like still a lot more than, than men. There are women who have some success with paleo, but then it's like they still are overweight, um, to a degree, not like overweight, overweight, but, um, you know, and people are just saying, you're not doing paleo well enough, or you must be going and eating Big Macs or whatever. Like, so what, what's your perspective there? Cause you experience that in, in the vegan world, but that definitely happens in paleo too. Right. So what, what's happening and how do we deal with that? Gosh, you know, that's been a question for me too. Cause I think the biggest proportion of emails and like con contract requests I get from people are from women who are struggling on paleo. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, that's not to say everybody who's female doesn't do well on paleo, but there does seem to be a plateau they hit or some people will actually start gaining weight while their husband is just, you know, dropping pounds like crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's very frustrating. So, um, my guess, you know, I haven't actually researched this as much as I would like, and it's something I'm interested in looking into more, but I'm guessing it has to do with hormones and different responses to um, maybe even dietary fat. Like I hate to say this, but women in general, I don't think we can necessarily go, um, you know, calories don't matter. I'm just going to douse coconut oil and butter on everything I'm going to eat and not worry about it too much because that doesn't seem to work mm -hmm. necessarily. So um, what I've noticed is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with resistant starch, but it's kind of a, I think an up and coming thing that will probably, um, I think, take the spotlight in the coming year. Sure, um, sure. So that's a, a type of starch that basically bypasses digestion and just gets um, consumed by your gut flora. And it, it can replenish your uh, your uh, microbes in your colon and just help a lot of your uh, gut -like ecology become healthier and, and grow better. Um, so I'm wondering in some ways if, you know, this cutting out of starches is going to be detrimental to, um, I don't know if that if there's a reason it affects women more than men, but it seems to me that um, a big issue of this dietary switch, no matter what you're switching to, is a change in your gut flora. So um, if there's some kind of hormone gut flora interaction that you know affects women in a different way than men, maybe that's going on. Um, but for the most part, what I would say when that situation occurs is that we really need to be kinder <laughs> to the women who are yeah. you know going through this rather than saying you're doing it wrong because all these other people have success. Um, but I do think maybe there's a place to um, switch up like the animal food to plant food ratio, work on mac macronutrients, just tweaking that around and not being afraid to go lower fat if that's what it takes or not being afraid to cut back on meat or something like that. Yeah, like yes. not to promote, because I think paleo has a tendency to be reactionary against um, conventional wisdom. And so we say, now we can eat all the bacon because yeah. they're wrong. They say we should eat lots of grains, so we're going to eat no grains. You know, they they say we need to limit fat, so we're going to put fat on everything. Yeah. And so I, I kind of experienced that myself when I swung back. From oh, it's fun. It's yeah. awesome. Well, gosh, I'm liberated because all the stuff I learned is wrong. Yeah. But you know, there may be things about that that you know, not that we should follow the food pyramid ever, because I don't think that's going to sure. work for anybody. But um, you know, there are some things about lowering fat content that doesn't necessarily mean fat is bad, but there may be situations where that's going to be beneficial for somebody. So I think we just need like a more moderate approach rather than just rebelling against everything we do, and you know, something like that. Says but, the rebel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> 
No, it's so true though. And, and what happens all the time. And, uh, I'm, I'm guilty of this cause I love goofing around about bacon and chocolate and stuff, but, oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's totally true that people will do this. Um, they're like, I'm paleo now, and this is what I'm doing. And this is what, uh, this blog or this podcast or, or whatever says is okay. And so what they do is, is they're like, well, I'm 100% paleo and all my foods are 100% paleo, but I don't know why it's not working. And then like, like, well, what did you have this morning? And they're like, well, I had 16 pieces of bacon and like 14 <laughs> eggs. And like, then I had this, this honey brisket for lunch and like this big paleo bread and covered that in, in a bunch of fat too. And it's like, hold on a second. What? Like, yeah. that's not really that paleo. And actually, you know, in, in a similar way as the diploma mills are catching on in alternative health, um, there are a lot of products that are starting to be built around paleo and I can't eat most of them because they don't line up with, uh, with my own goals and what I know works well. Uh, for my own health. And I, I would assume that extends to a lot of other people too. And an example of that is like, I don't look at nutrition facts. Uh, I do look at ingredients, but usually I eat things without labels anyway. But uh, for the paleo stuff, I'll turn it over and I look at the amount of sugar in it. And it's like, there'll be, it'll be this tiny little, you know, chocolatey thing or whatever. And it has like 15 grams of sugar, but don't worry, it's all from honey. So it doesn't count because it's 100% paleo. Fried fruit packed in. Yeah. Right. So what do you have to say about something like that? It's, you know, I don't want to, there's so many great paleo cookbooks and everything that replicate recipes and foods that we have in our, you know, standard American diet. And I, I think there's a place for those for people who really need, you know, to eat that kind of thing, but they're going to react poorly to the gluten and the standard food. But at the same time, I think there's a big spectrum of like fake foods to real foods. And the things that are what you're describing right now fall closer to the end of the spectrum of foods that I think we're really trying to get away from, yeah. which is, you know, these, these, combinations as well of ingredients that tend to increase your appetite. Um, I think anytime you combine a lot of fat with a lot of sugar, it just tastes amazing and then you're going to want to gorge on it. Yeah. Um, but when you eat a product like that, it's it just it's skirting too much back into the realm of exactly what's wrong with our food right now and our entire food system, which is that so many of the things we're eating and that are available out there are created by food manufacturers to increase appetite and to hook us onto, you know, consuming a lot of these things. And I think certain flavor combinations like you're describing, um, and ingredient combinations, you know, again, combine a lot of fat with a lot of sugar, it's going to have that same effect. Yeah. And so you can't really eat a food like that and say, well, it's paleo. Um, in fact, I think the whole idea of eating a paleo diet, um, we kind of miss the, the boat in a lot of ways because paleo also includes like eating nose to tail and the animal. A lot of people mm -hmm. just eat the muscle meat. There's they a lot of different part, ways. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, you get your, you're eating your vegetables from a grocery store rather than picking it fresh out of the ground from, you know, great nutrient replete soil. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of ways where we really just cannot replicate that kind of diet perfectly. Um, you just have to do what you can. But those fake foods and the Franken foods within the paleo realm, at this point, I think a lot of it is an attempt to um, just profit, I think, off of the movement. Yeah. And I don't want to say, you know, there's people out there who are creating great products. And I don't want to, you know, insult sure. them right oh, now. Sure. Oh, totally. But at the same time, I think um, those things, if you're going to include them in your diet at all, they need to be in very small, minor amounts rather than being the staples. They're and, fun and they're a treat. And I think what exactly. um, one, of the, one of the problematic things about any sort of dogmatic scheme, which could be vegan or paleo or, or anything else, uh, is that people say, okay, now I can do whatever I want. But the, the real answer is that you can never really do it whatever you want and, and, you know, be an idiot about it. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> that's, that's the thing. So I yeah. do get people and, uh, 
I mean, I mean, tip of the hat, if you can sit down and eat 16 pieces of bacon or whatever, but like when people say that to me, it, it's, it's a little bit nuts because at some point your brain is like, that's enough of that. Like I do not need any more bacon right now. Right? Um, and for me, even as much as I love it, I'll have like per sitting, maybe two slices max. And that'll be like once or twice a week. It's really not more than that. Sometimes we'll put it in other things or whatever, but, um, there's a uh, there's a good book that I think covers it at a high level, the way to think about a diet, the the way to actually live your life, and um, that's French women don't get fat, and it's just like you can kind of do whatever you want on certain days every once in a while, <laughs> but you can't do whatever you want all of the time because something is 100% paleo or 100% vegan, yeah. because chances are if if it's coming in a package, then it's not anyway, or at least it's not true to the heart of what paleo is supposed to mean, which is like recently alive and well. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at also paleo, just the idea of if we're going to replicate what our bodies have been accustomed to over the course of our evolution, it wasn't having abundance every single day. You know, you're not going to find a bird that's going to give you 16 eggs a day, you know, and like find that every single day and have that be your breakfast every single day. You know, there's going to be times of abundance and there's going to be times of extreme scarcity. And so maybe that's the case for intermittent fasting or just, you know, kind of cycling your diet to be seasonal and to, uh, to reflect, um, you know, those different fluctuations and just not having it be completely steady. Um, but yeah, the idea of, of living in that abundance is not paleo at all. Yeah. And I think maybe that's a trap people fall into too. And I think there's just this appeal in finding a diet where you can cut out certain foods, but then eat whatever you want, mm -hmm. how much you want and not have to worry about portion control or anything like that. I mean, there's a lot, that's what I saw within the raw vegan realm too, especially right. the fruitarian diet. It's that you just can't eat any fat. You can't eat any cooked food, but you can eat 30 bananas a day right. and you'll, the weight will drop off you. And there's appeal in that, especially I think to people who have eating disorders or just sure, an unhealthy yeah. relationship with food, it, it tends to attract that kind of, that kind of person mindset. Yeah, yeah, totally. So we're coming up on time, but I did want to save some time for you, Denise, to uh, if there's anything that you haven't had a chance to rant about yet anywhere <laughs> else, I would love to open it up for you to do that right now. But if you don't have that, then I do have a, a, another question for you. Um, yeah, I don't think I have too much ranting in me right now. I've, okay. I've exhausted that recently. So. <laughs> so let's do this then. Let's Let's have you talk about like why is bad science so prevalent? Okay, so big reason is I think human beings, lay public in general, we tend to believe that science is this thing that's so far above us that we can't reach it if we don't have a PhD, if we don't have formal science training. So what happens is the people who control the dispense of science are the media and um, you know journalists who don't have any background themselves in science but who are filtering things for us. And uh, we basically are disconnected from primary research. Uh, and everything that we trust is going to be filtered through someone else's lens. Mm -hmm. And so what that causes is this epidemic of um, basically bad studies that are out there that get way too much credence in our minds, especially observational studies, which tend to dominate the news headlines, you know, things like red meat raises risk of type 2 diabetes. You see that kind of thing everywhere. And um, if you're somebody who doesn't have any uh, grasp of science, you've not done or if you've not attempted to really understand what those findings mean, you're just going to see that headline and take it as gospel. Um, but in reality, what we have going on above our heads is a big web of different kinds of studies and 
Um, some of them are much higher quality than other ones, and we don't know how to distinguish between which ones are worth listening to and which ones aren't. So we just listen to the media. Yeah. And um, so the observational studies, the issue with that is that you really can't prove cause and effect about diet just by observing people, observing what they're eating, and then observing how they die later on because there's just too many variables going on to untangle. Yeah. And so what we really need is we need to listen to human studies that are done um, in clinical settings that are controlled um, where you, you, know, you, you have scientists who are just tweaking a certain variable and then watching what the cascade of events is after that. And so if, um, if humans, the, the population that is health interested, if we just had this one understanding of the difference between observational studies and experiments, I think that would go a huge way in helping us sift through what kind of headlines we should be listening to and not. Um, so I think that's, that's one reason that uh, bad science tends to prevail is because we haven't educated ourselves. Yeah. And so I really recommend that people out there, um, you know, reading like a study, like in its study form can be really daunting because there's all sorts of science jargon on there, really technical terms. It looks very terrifying to most people who don't have any familiarity with that language. Um, but it's really easy to learn. It's, it's not as scary as it looks. And I put some tips in my book, you know, for people to help determine um, like what kind of studies are worth listening to, help decipher these big jargon science words, that kind of thing. But it's something you can really do on your own and it doesn't take that much time. So I really just would love people to um, just take a little bit of time to educate themselves so that they can understand what these big headlines mean and what's going on within the studies. Um, and that way you can dismiss the things that aren't worth listening to rather than getting scared over them and changing your diet based on them. Awesome. I love that. So before we go, why don't we tell folks uh, where they can find you and a little bit about your book? Sure. So my website is rawfoodsos.com. Um, you can also get to it, I think, by typing in deniseminger.com. I believe I claim that domain name if you can't. <laughs> nice. Um, so, and I'm Twitter. I'm Denise Minger. My handle is um, Denise Minger. And uh, Facebook, you can just type in Denise Minger and friend me. And my, my page is pretty much just like professional stuff. So it's okay for friends on Facebook. Um, and, uh, so my book death by food permit, it's available on amazon.com. It's available through primal primal blueprint publishing.com, which is my publisher's website. And, um, it's basically a book that has three main sections. One is an exploration of the food pyramid and how it came into being. Um, one is just, uh, a large expose on the scientific history and where things went wrong with our understanding of fat and with carbohydrates and with um, grains and just how that big mess came into place. And then the third section is um, called New Geometry and it's a synthesis of basically all these health promoting diets. Like where do they intersect? What can we learn from looking at things on a global, comprehensive, holistic way instead of just pitting these different diets against each other and trying to figure out which one's the best? What can we learn collectively from all of them? And so um, I, I really hope that it's a book that will help people learn how to think rather than just being told what to think. So, it will. I love yeah. it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Denise. Her name is Denise Minger, and she's at rawfoodsos.com. The book is Death by Food Pyramid, and it's awesome. I encourage you guys to check it out. Denise, thanks again for coming on. We'll have you on again soon. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.